Hello and welcome to the Visa Angle, an Visa Partners podcast where we analyze the biggest stories from around the world and their impact on business and policy. Visa Partners is a global public affairs and government relations consulting firm. You can learn more at avisa-partners.com. And you can find the Visa Angle on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. I'm your host, Daniel Flesh, coming to you from our office in Washington, D.C. This is the third episode in a mini-series covering the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Two weeks ago, I spoke with my colleague Pauline Massard out of the Brussels office to discuss the impact the war was having on European politics and how European leaders are viewing the, the course of the war. Last week, as part of our bi-weekly Visa Insight, I spoke with my colleague Omi Rommel on how the war is starting to change geopolitics around the world. And today, in the third and final episode, I speak with my colleague back across the, the pond with Kurt DeBuff out of the Brussels office on an underreported region of, of, the, of the war, the impact on the war, that is the Middle East. Kurt is a senior political advisor out of the Visa Brussels office. He has more than 20 years of experience in politics, geopolitics, and strategic communications, including as advisor and spokesperson of the Belgian prime minister, director at the Flemish Liberal Party, chief of staff in the European Parliament, and much more. Kurt previously served as director of a think tank on Middle East policy and editor-in-chief of the EU Observer, the fourth most influential European newspaper in Brussels. From 2011 to 2016, Kurt lived in Cairo. He is a research fellow at Oxford University and published a very present book in 2018 called Tribalization, Why War is Coming. Kurt, welcome to the Visa Angle. Thank you. So, Kurt, like I mentioned, this is episode we're going to discuss the Middle East, and certainly people are aware, perhaps tangentially, of an impact that well, at least one year uh, Middle Eastern country is having in the war, that is Iran. But more generally, if we could speak from a 30,000-foot perspective, what impact, if any, is a war having on the Middle East? Well, first of all, I think the, the most important impact was obviously, let's say, uh, uh, the grain that was being uh, stuck in Ukraine. So um, a, a country like, for example, Egypt is depending for more than 90% on, uh, on the grain from Ukraine. So um, when that was not coming, I mean, uh, for Egyptian economy, that was a disaster, um, specifically because the poor people, which is, yeah, well, I would say half of the Egyptian population is highly depending on bread. And when there's no grain to make bread, then, then it's becoming uh, obviously a big problem. Right. So um, this is one example. Another one is, of course, is that, that several of these countries have, um, I mean, we're talking not just about Syria, but also, uh, indeed, for example, Iraq, uh, Egypt, and so forth, and the Gulf, they have been a kind of trying to, to remain in the last few years a bit neutral between the West and Russia. And of course, this war is forcing them to, well, to, to, to more or less choose a side, which uh, they still try not to do. And a part of it is, of course, because of Russian propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing we haven't, I've, in the previous episodes, actually, I haven't mentioned so much is if people recall the beginning of the war, the main consideration for the global impact would have been that Ukraine is in many ways the breadbasket of grain, certainly for Europe. It's also one of the largest producers of grain, of uh, corn, of uh, soy and other beans, um, other 
crops for the for much of the world. So if you're suddenly that supply is threatened as it was during any wartime, then then the downstream effects that you're talking about Egypt will be profound. Um, has that kind of stabilized a bit recently, or is Egypt even a year on? Because I know grain imports were you know they were restricted for a number of months. There was a UN deal in the in the, uh, in the fall, I believe, or end of summer between Russia and Ukraine to allow more exports out, but. Has that stabilized for Egyptians, for other countries, or still are they facing uh, situations where there's a shortage of, of wheat? I think that, I think there's still a shortage of wheat, but it's less, let's say, urgent and less massive than it was before. Yeah. Um, just to give you an example is actually, I mean, uh, bread is subsidized, heavily subsidized uh, in Egypt, and people can buy it for, for very, very cheap. So but the price has remained the same because if it would increase the price, then they might face a bread revolution like that we have seen in 1977 when right. people on masses joined the street. So what they actually have done is make keep the price the same but make the small big bread smaller. So actually, right now it's only half of the size as it was before. So, um, but it's it has become less urgent. So so and and. That's of course a good thing um, in general, but um, it, it it didn't prevent the economy also to to to, to collapse in, in in general. It's not because of the war, but let's say that the war is not helping uh, um, the economy in general. Right. Okay. You mentioned that Iraq is kind of caught between. I don't want to say Iraq in a hard place, but caught between two sides, figuring out how to balance their strategic interests. What's an update on that situation? Well. These countries have 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 been for let's say for for for, for decades being part of of the non-aligned movement. Right. So uh, they tried not to choose. Obviously, these countries. I mean, and we're talking about Iraq. We're talking about Jordan. We're talking about Egypt. Um, they have been having an agreements, willing or not willing, with you, with the United States, with the West. I mean, uh, a great part of their uh, arms are coming are being bought in the United States and so forth. Or in France, for that matter. So, um, but from the army side, there's still this this old link that there is with the Russian army that exists already, also again for decades. We have seen the same in Syria. That's also the reason why the Russians feel connected with the Syrian regime. Is actually there is this old bad uh, socialist connection between uh, Damascus, between uh, Baghdad, between even Cairo and Moscow that you cannot just uh, throw away uh, because uh, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. So these links are high level. Uh, when I was in, in, in Syria, for example, during the war, and I spoke to a few defected generals, it's funny that they spoke no English, n- n- no, no, no French, but most of them spoke all Russian hmm. or Farsi. So they have been trained or in Iran or in Russia. And these links, of course, remain there. Yeah, you speak about the Ba'ath, you speak about this socialist ideology that came into the Arab and Arab world in what, 1958, was it? Or the 1950s that uh, the revolution in, or that, that Saddam Hussein came to power, or the Ba'athist regime came to power, and then also in Iraq, and then also in Syria. And that's continued to, well, until Saddam was overthrown in the early 2000s. But that ideology has maintained a link between Russia and Syria. Of course, Russia's been supporting the Assad regime in the Syrian civil war for the last 10 plus years. But you're saying that even goes back even further. 
before the last kind of immediate strategic interest that Russia had to, pl- to play in Syria for a variety of other reasons, such as their only warm water ports uh, that they have for their navy. Well, of course, they have. They always had the uh, military. Uh, they have navy ships uh, in Tartus, for example, in Syria. Um, I don't think they had any in, in any other country. Mm-hmm. But one interesting example is is that uh, I believe it was in 2014 when uh, Vladimir Putin visited Cairo, and and um, I mean, apart from the, the the awful way that they played the Russian anthem, is that. Mm-hmm. Um, they made an agreement on, 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 on huge rockets being sent from Russia to, uh, uh, to Egypt. And only two weeks later, I've seen the, the pictures of uh, these massive rockets being driven down the ring road uh, over Cairo. So the, the same happened uh, 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 um, in Turkey, you know, the S-400s that have been uh, sent. And what we see now is that Iran is asking the same S-400s. So... So which which is an which is Russian an anti aircraft anti aircraft missile that allows protection exactly. for to to establish air superiority. Exactly. So so according to these countries, I mean, uh, they do not get what they want from the United States. So the United States restricts what they are giving to these uh, well regimes, mm-hmm. whether democratic or not. Um, so and they feel a bit. Um, well, they say like, you know, if you don't want to give it, we'll ask it to the Russians. And the Russians are apparently giving it in a matter of weeks. So so um, that, 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 that's an, an evolution that and a link that has not changed since the war. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's always that old adage, you know, if you want something done fast and efficient, I mean, autocracies are great for that, right? Democracies are notoriously slow because of deliberation and the great example we're talking about if, if if Putin can turn around a promise for S-400s or other missiles uh, in a matter of weeks after agreeing with them with a you know with an allied nation of theirs you can you contrast that with our the U.S.'s promise to give uh, Abrams tanks to Ukraine's can take upwards of one to one and a half to even two years to deliver on those if they get delivered at all. Exactly yeah and that's also the problem of Europe and, and everything that the EU is doing for, let's say, countries outside the EU is that the bureaucracy and just the procedures are taking a very long time. And they are also complaining that countries like China or Russia or even Turkey uh, are acting much more swiftly. So whether it's it's, it's about energy, it's about infrastructure uh, and so forth. But but it's interesting to, 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 if we look at the Middle East, I mean, I always refer to the vote of 7th April uh, um, 2022, where uh, in the General Assembly of the United Nations, they voted on uh, suspension of Russia from the Human Rights Council. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the uh, 54 African states, actually eight only voted with the West for the the suspension. From the Asian countries, from the 45 Asian countries, only five voted with the West. And if you take the Middle Eastern countries, I mean, from the 18 countries, only vote two voted with the West, which was Israel and Libya. All the others all voted against or, uh, 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 well, uh, abstained. So, which means they don't want to choose sides. And, and, and this is the Middle East that we have today. Yeah, that's actually, that echoes perfectly Pauline's comment from a couple of weeks ago that we were focusing again, like I mentioned at the outset, what Europe and European leaders, how they're viewing the war, what they're thinking about as the war enters its second year. Obviously, we've talked about the arms shipments that Germany and others has promised to Ukraine. 
But by and large, he said, outside of Europe, the rest of the world, I'm not going to say doesn't care, but it's not as impactful for them outside of a couple of countries here and there. And this is a great example of that, that votes in last April, most countries by abstaining is a way to say, you know, an abstention is still a vote. It's still a choice in some ways. And I worked at the UN for a few years. I definitely saw this firsthand, but it's a way to say, you know what, we're not going to choose a side um, because they don't have a direct dog in the fight. And if they're being impacted as Egypt is by, by uh, rising wheat prices that's impacting their population, how can they choose a side? If they, even if they view Russian as an aggressor, how can they choose a side when the fact is that their citizenry is suffering? Exactly. And, and, and I heard actually, I mean, two uh, uh, reasons for, 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 for this vote. I mean, one comes from Africa, uh, um, uh, and the comment was indeed like, I mean, why do we want to choose? Why do we have to choose? Mm-hmm. I mean, we do not want a new Cold War, so, so keep us out of this fight. And another one was from a former minister of Pakistan. I mean, not exactly perhaps a friend of the United States, but uh, she said, you know, when, when the U.S. And, 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 and many European countries invaded Iraq, I mean, we had to support you. Uh, even though that war was not legal, and now the other war is not legal, and now we have to condemn and sanction Russia. So no, we're not going to do that. So so we're living in a new world, so yeah. where where our allies, I mean, are thinking twice or three times before supporting us, and we we can't take their support for granted anymore. So we will have to convince them in any way or another. That's, that's very well taken. You mentioned Israel quickly as one of the two countries. Uh, actually, I'm really curious, quickly, why did Libya support the, uh, the vote? I don't know. I, I haven't <laughs> heard. I, I, I don't know why. I, uh, I think that, that the current government of Libya is really, I mean, living thanks to the support of, of the West. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why they were more easy to convince yeah. than the others. Yeah, that's that. That makes sense. And also, uh, you know, Israel also is a very difficult position because they have certainly, you know, there are Western countries they want to align with the West and the U.S. in this case. However, Russia is on their doorstep effectively in Syria, and they're you know they're working with the Russians to deconflict operations in Syria against the Iranians, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and moreover. Um, Israel has a very large uh, Russian population. You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union. I think about a million Soviet Jews went to Israel. So it's a very tricky situation they're in. And it's not that they don't support Ukraine, for example, or view that Russian aggression is, is, is it, you know, the Russia acted aggressively uh, and violated international law. But the fact is they're in a tricky situation. They can't really uh, choose a side for reasons I just mentioned and, and other things too. Um, but even still, I think it's an easy vote they had on the Human Rights Council because they have other issues with the Human Rights Council as well. Exactly, but I also think that the uh, Israeli position, I mean, even though it is not easy, they also have something else uh, in mind, and that is uh, what is happening in Iran. And whatever is happening between Israel and Iran, they will need the support of the United States. And Russia is not going to help them, so right. because of reasons that we can't talk about. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the Israeli government clearly has this in, in, in the back of their mind. Not just in the back of their mind, high, high on their mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and speaking of Iran, it's a great transition here. So Iran has been outside of Europe and certainly outside of China, perhaps the biggest supporter of Russia in the war. I mean, it's not really the highest bar, but uh, they've supplied drones technology to Russia, which says a couple things at one time. It's a question of like, why is Russia, which is supposedly a first-rate military, although we've learned the last year that, that might not quite be the case, uh, why are they getting drones from 
from Iran versus developing their own capabilities or having done it before. Of course, Iran's been developing drones for a number of years, many ways to, to conduct asymmetric operations in, across the Middle East. Uh, that being said, so Russia, uh, Iran's been supplying drones to Russia, and recently, in the last week or two, reports have come out that perhaps Russia will be selling planes, fighters, to Iran. So what's this relationship like, and how has it been evolving? Well, historically, I mean, there is no friendship whatsoever between Russia and Iran. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have been fighting for centuries, uh, 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 for example, over the Caucasus, but also Russia has occupied parts of Iran for quite a long time. So there is no historic relationship between the two countries. However, what is changing now is that you have the old rule that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, um, and well... The enemy of both is right now the United States, very clear. So, so uh, and, and Europe, perhaps. So that's what links them really together. So um, there are no more countries, well, except for, for North Korea, perhaps. Uh, but no more countries have more are more being sanctioned by the West than those two. So, which brings them obviously uh, together. Right. Russia's role in the Middle East, particularly since the Syrian civil war, Russia's been prominent in Syria, supported the Assad regime, and uh, Assad has been under the thumb of uh, of the Islamic, Revo- Islamic Republic of Iran, of Tehran, uh, since, well, for a few decades now at least, in part because also Iran needs has the only overland bridge to Lebanon to, to you know access to support Hezbollah. And in this convoy that they often send over for arms and other material, I mean, they have getting back to Israel, striking them uh, numerous times the last 10 or so years to try to thwart any support that they, they're providing to, to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, so, but you're right, there's not a historical friendship. I would never use that word, but the relationship is right. It, it's growing out of its geostrategic necessity. Um, and more recently, also, inspectors over the last week have found that Iran now has enriched uranium to over 83%. Kind of bringing another element here that Iran's trying to do in the region uh, is you know, develop its nuclear, nuclear program. And 83%, it sounds like it's a random number, but essentially means that they're producing enough fissile material to develop a nuclear device within a couple of weeks. And this has been kind of on the back burner of the Biden administration for the last six months at least, if not longer, um, do we have an update on what this means for the region? So, no, the fact that they, that they have found uh, 83% uh, enriched uh, uh, uranium is obviously extremely worrying. Um, what Iran is really up to, I think, uh, uh, I don't know, and, and, and I'm afraid nobody really knows, and, and many people even in the Iranian regime don't know uh, why this is and, and, and what is happening, what the strategy is. But it is indeed clear that there are just few percentages away from uh, from from being able to, create, to to make nuclear weapons, and um, if if we see that possibility, we zoom a bit out, mm-hmm. and of course, Israel is 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 not wanting to accept this in the first place, and the Biden administration has said they back Israel in whatever they would like to do. At least that's my understanding. Um, I mean, this this might we might see a start of a brand new massive conflict, uh, not just in the Middle East uh, between Israel and Iran, but but possibly also with the United States involved. So, um, which would be a, a, a second war um, 
on a massive scale. And, and well, I, I really wonder how this is going to evolve, but it is extremely worrying. Yes, yeah, a few years ago, Victor Davis Hanson, a historian, wrote a book called The Second World Wars, in which he talks about how it wasn't really a world war. It was a series of different wars that, yeah, there was absolutely commonality with, you know, the Axis powers, um, although supporting each other, mainly at least with Japan and Germany out of just strategic interest versus actual mutual uh, uh, mutual interest. Um, but it was a series of wars starting perhaps in Manchuria in the 30s and escalating, escalating, et cetera, et cetera. And similarly, is this a possibility that, um, you know, not so necessarily intentionally, but the war in Ukraine is, I hate to say, like the first war and what could be a series of wars that because particularly the United States is distracted in Europe, China is eyeing Taiwan, Russia, excuse me, uh, Iran is is forging ahead with its nuclear ambitions, perhaps getting, again, fighter jets from, from Russia. Um, you know, could this then escalate into a series of different wars that there might be some common axis behind it. You know, let's talk about now about a Russian, Iranian, Chinese axis. Again, not three countries that necessarily have uh, supporting interests, but that we could be escalating to a series of different wars that come to look like a world war. I don't want to get into a world war, but a series of escalating conflicts. Well, I'm, 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 I mean, I, I just published a book in, in Dutch and French, and the title is Why This Is Not The Last War. And um, um, I indeed think that we might see more wars and the big words, the, the W word, I mean, the world war, um, from what moment can we use that word? Uh, that, that, that's the question. But if we're going to have two or three conflicts um, in which, in a way, the West will be involved, if it likes it or not, um, then I do not see how we could not use, use the word world war. So, mm-hmm. so we are pretty close to it, uh, frankly speaking, and it's 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 extremely worrying. And um, so, so I I really think that that we need to do everything to to, to avoid this in in some way or another because um, um, this is not forty forty three or forty two. I mean, we are really um, not that strong anymore as we were in the past as the West. Mm-hmm. So um, even though the Russian army is much less strong than we have expected, yeah. but, but, but I mean, having a war on three or four fronts, even if there's a small one left and right, and do not forget that, for example, the Sahel uh, is, is, is collapsing as well, or already has collapsed uh, um, Western Africa. for 30%. So... I mean, how much of all this can we handle? So, so we're really coming to, to a boiling point where we have to decide, I mean, which kind of politics that we want to do. Um, and, 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 and it's so big that, that, that we really have to think really deep in order to, to, to proceed with one. I mean, we can't sleepwalk into another war, in my opinion. And that, just like in the first world, or maybe that's a better a better comparison, but suddenly because of all reasons, and I have said this to this guy, and I support this guy, and support that with in a few weeks suddenly we're getting into a global conflict. So it is extremely dangerous. Yeah, and I was going to bring up the Sleepwalkers, also a book about World War One, 
about how Europe slept walk into the war before you know it's, you know, it was peaceful in August 1914. And by September, the entire continent is war, expected to be home by Christmas. But five, you know, four years later, four or five years later, uh, there was the end of the Great War at the time. Getting back to the idea of Russia, Iran, and China, do you view those three powers as forming a new, not intentional, but by virtue of their stronger, their growing ties together, uh, particularly Russia and Iran and Russia and China, because Xi, I think, is, you know, he's promising he's going to go to Moscow, I believe, and might be giving more lethal aid now to Russia. Obviously, that's kind of a, I don't use the term red line, but Secretary Blinken has said, no, we cannot stand for that. You should not be giving lethal aid to Russia. Um, do you view those three countries as forming a new sort of axis in, in perhaps in their only mutual interest is to defy and push back against the West? Well, I mean, that seems logical, but I have one one remark about this. I mean, that Russia and Iran right now are playing this game um, is one thing, but I, I never forget what actually one Chinese diplomat told me. Now, he was a researcher, excuse me. And he said, you know, for China, the most important thing is stability. Mm-hmm. That's also the reason why, I mean, I asked them, are you involved in Syria? Or, in, I mean, in the Middle East, uh, but mostly in Syria. And he says, no, we can't do anything in Syria because we need stability. We, want, we, have, we need resources. We need, uh, uh, that's why they built this entire train, why they are working in Africa and so forth and so forth. I mean, they need resources in order to get their country on track, mm-hmm. to get their economy growing. Mm-hmm. And whatever conflict is breaking out in their neighborhood, or, 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 that is collapsing. So I don't think they have a, a uh, that this is really what they want. And um, obviously they're not very pro-United States or pro-Europe uh, in a way that they think that we are treating them not as we should, but making that, that push them to the other side of the, of, 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 of the balance. I don't think that is going to happen. Um, which does not mean that they have their own things that they want to solve, but um, getting into some kind of conflict, I, I, I don't believe that they are supportive of Russia. And they have even more historical reasons than Iran to distrust Russia in, in every single way. Perhaps the Russian-Chinese relationship is more about, recently, Russia showed that it's not so much a first-rate military, perhaps a third-rate military, that there's been... Um, you know, there's been pressures, I think, on the Russo-Chinese border, uh, the Russo-China border, particularly because China's population, it's very barren out there um, in eastern Russia. And, and there's been, I think, interest in China in capturing some territory. And then also, I mean, Xi Jinping, I think his main objective, perhaps as leader, is to reunify China with Taiwan. I mean, these don't seem necessarily like things that, yeah, they might not trust Russia, but they're clearly, a, they believe at least, and it might be increasingly clear, they might be a stronger power than Russia. Uh, and in addition, if Xi Jinping is interested in recapturing Taiwan, I mean, that's not really a vote for stability. Oh, you're right. So, so I didn't, in the view of China, of course, uh, Taiwan has never been a different country. So right. Taiwan is a part of China. So, um, and that they want the reunification is obviously clear. The question is, how are they going to do that? So um, Taiwan is, 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 of course, one thing, um, which I don't know what, what they're going to do, on, on which point I don't know what they're going to do. But that's another thing than, than 
really make an alliance with Russia or Iran. Or really, I mean, and one argument one, one could make is that, I mean, the economy of China is indeed uh, 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 um, slowing down, mm-hmm. so the growth. Um, and what, of course, is always working is a, is a war economy that is pushing uh, the, the growth uh, figures up, the jobs up, and so forth. But I think that the Chinese are, are enough realistic, and they know their history enough to know that war economies are are very temporary and so so yeah. i i'm just not sure I, i'm just not sure um yes i mean in the end they might say you know united states and europe they're involved with russian war maybe with iran so if we take taiwan nobody's gonna bother us maybe they're right i don't know so so um but but I don't think they will go any further than that. Yeah. So let's get a little, little too far afield from the Middle East here. We've got a few minutes left, but we'll get back to uh, Iran also. Something that we even, we even discussed here, and it actually hasn't been so much in the news lately, is you, know, you might recall that there's been significant protests for the last six-plus months in Iran. Uh, it's not necessarily led by any individual or group, but it's been more mass protests. But is this threatening you know, the government's control on the state? Um, you know, the one hand, you have uh, Iran accelerating its path toward nuclear weapon. On the other hand, you have internal decay, so to call it, or unrest, certainly. How do we pair those things together? How do we square them? Well, I think that the, the, indeed many Iranians are fed up with, with this regime. And, um, but the question is, is this a tipping point towards the end of the regime? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish it was, but I don't think it is. So... Um, also, because in many cities you see there's a kind of they protest uh, during the evening and during the day they're going to work and then I mean it, and life goes on so the protests are still there. I think the tipping point will will, will probably be if Khamenei is going to die. I mean, what the about Ayatollah. the succession and, yeah. and, and and yes, Ayatollah um, and and what is going to happen then? Nobody is there with enough um, religious uh, prestige and enough religious. Uh, um, 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 well, gravitas actually to 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 follow up to to succeed him. So I think that's one tipping point there. Secondly, also important what we have seen with the the, the killing of uh, of Soleimani, the uh, the head of uh, the Republic Guard, is that even though people are protesting all the time back then in Iran as well, when this guy this this guy was killed, people burst into the streets, organized or not. Um, I mean, in support of, of him. So whenever bombs will land on Iran from a different country, I mean, that might reun- reunify mm-hmm. those people that are right now protesting against the regime. And I think that's something that we should bear in mind. That's very interesting. Yeah, the rally around the flag effect, right? Because I yeah. think what we're getting at here is bringing Israel back to the equation. The closer the Iran gets to a nuclear weapon, Israeli leaders, Netanyahu in particular, has said that they will not, you know, that's a clear red line, a violation. They, will, they cannot allow a nuclear weapon to be in the hands of the Ayatollahs. And if they were to do something, Israel, the United States, the West, whomever, uh, as a reaction to this, then that might also in turn build domestic support for the regime. Because again, it's looking like foreign, mainly Western influences are once again, well, attacking us, attacking Iranians. So that's a, right, that dichotomy is very interesting as we'll see it play out. Well, hopefully not see it play out. Well, I, I hope so, uh, not as well. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. So just a minute or two left. Uh, I want to ask, is there anything other, we've covered a number of countries here. Uh, is there anything other, anything else of particular notes that we did not touch on or something you're watching that not, other, not many other people are? Well, I mean, there are two things that are still uh, uh, very important. I mean, and that is, first of all, Russian propaganda that they are doing far longer and better than we do uh, um, for a very long time. And it's efficient. So, mm-hmm. uh, for example, in Sudan, they have been saying, you know, you, you don't get the wheat because of, of Europe sanctioning Russia and, and mainly the French. So they are playing the game against the French. So this propaganda is working and we are not are not working enough on this. And mm. secondly, Wagner is still out there. I mean, even though they are they are massively fighting in Ukraine, they're still in Africa and might go to other places as well. Explain who they so, are. I'm sorry? Explain who they are. The Wagner Group. Oh, the 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 the, the, the militia of uh, of of Prigozhin, the guy close to Putin, with actually kind of have become the elite troops in mm-hmm. uh, Ukraine. But these are also mercenaries who are still fighting in countries like the Central African Republic, hmm. like Mali, like Sudan and Libya. So where they are destabilizing European and American uh, interests in the entire continent. So um, this is Middle East, this is Africa. So, but there's also a cultural policy that they are. I mean, they, they haven't given up on, 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 let's say, having their influence in the world, even though they are focused, is also still going on, on uh, uh, they are focusing on Ukraine. So we should not forget that. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a uh, information, but also resources war that Russia is, doing against us far uh, broader than just in Ukraine. Well, wonderful. I think with that final comment, you perfectly combined the idea of sleepwalking and the mult- and the world wars uh, into one, and maybe we're facing, God forbid, another situation like that. But, you know, if we can identify kind of steps along that escalation ladder, perhaps then we could take steps to stop it. So very heartwarming and uplifting news there, Kurt. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my pleasure. Yeah, it was great having you on. Um, and, and this was a great conversation covering a lot of the Middle East. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the time we have for today. And we'll see everyone next week on The Avisa Angle. 